morning. <clears throat> if you want to open your Bibles to Philippians 3. I'm going to read 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, we kind of covered 3.1 last week, and as is the case usually, when you preach, you oversimplify what's going on in the text because there's actually a lot of opinions and, and variations and how people outline it, how what people think the emphasis is. And that's basically what I did last week in that 3.1, he's talking about there's some things, big things that we need to repeat and are worth repeating and are safe to repeat over and over and over. And last week we talked about it as if it was rejoicing, which is actually, from what I read, about half of half the commentators think that that's what he's referring to. Well, what I didn't tell you is that the other half think it's the second section after this, which is the gospel that he's repeating. And there's reasons on both sides. But we'll just take last week as if it was uh, rejoicing that he's repeating, and then this week we're going to take it as if it's the gospel that he's saying needs to be repeated. And so to start out, just a reminder of what we said last week, that we need the big things to be repeated, that they're worth repeating, and one of them is the gospel. We need the gospel to be repeated. We need to hear it again. Whether we're lost, definitely need to hear the gospel. You need to know, how can a man be right with God? How can I be saved from my sin? And if we're a Christian, we need to repeat it. And that's the context here, is Paul's not repeating it to necessarily people that haven't heard it. He's specifically saying, I've already said this, and I'm repeating it again. And he goes on to talk to them as if they're Christians. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And so he's talking to Christians, repeating the gospel, and saying it's safe for us to once again go over what Jesus did, how we can be saved from our sin, and it's safe to do that. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, is go over once again the gospel and what it means. How can we be right with God? The basic truth, and the scary part is, that we could become inoculated. 
vaccinized. You know, you get a little tiny bit of the virus and they put it in. So that way when a lot comes, you've already experienced it and it doesn't affect you. And we don't want that to be the case with Jesus. You've got just enough of Jesus that when you hear about him, you zone out like it doesn't matter. We don't want that. That would be a shame. That would be sad. Because the reality is the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And so if we've heard about Jesus over and over and over, we don't want to get callous. We don't want to get to where it doesn't affect us again. We don't want to get to where we hear that someone died on our behalf and it doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like somebody really died. It just seems like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Some story, but it's not a real, it's not a real person. It wasn't real, a real death. It wasn't real blood. It wasn't a real cross. There's not a real God coming to help those who call to him. We don't want that. We want the reality. And so we could just pray, say a prayer, God, would you make it real again? We want to rejoice. We want to see what you've done for us. We don't want it to be, we don't want to be vaccinized, just have enough of Jesus to where he doesn't affect us anymore. That's not what we want. And so, that's an introduction, some of it which repeat from last week. But let's look first at verse 2 and 3, where he says, Beware, or some translations might say, Look out, three times. Three things we're looking out for. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, it's easy for us to read in our context. What does it mean when somebody calls somebody a dog today? But the reality is that this is back in the first century context. And what he's probably referring to is, in all three of these, is people that are Jewish. And we can assume that from the last one, it's a little bit hard to translate those who mutilate the flesh. Some translations say false circumcision. And what it is, is it's kind of a pun, a play on words that means um, you, you, you messed up a circumcision. And um, so it's saying you tried to be circumcised, but you messed up and you're not really. And the reality is, is it's a kind of a pun and insult saying you think you're circumcised, which in that day, you know, you could go to the temple. You had to be circumcised to go and worship in the temple. And he says, but you're really not. And it's really hard to uh, get into English, but the only way I could think about it, one commentator said it would be like saying con-sized, which con is um, more like off and size is is the word for cut. And so it's he's intentionally contrasting it to circumcision, but he is um he's saying they're not really right with God and and, and so that context means we're probably talking to Jewish. We don't know exactly what these false teachers were saying, but he's saying look out for them, they're probably Jewish. And then what does dog mean there? Why does he call him a dog? Well I'm going to read you a verse from Exodus 22. And one thing to note, this is a little bit technical, but it's helpful. Um, 
even in understanding some other passages where dogs come up in the New Testament. Exodus 22:31. I'll read it to you. It says, You shall be consecrated to me, therefore, and you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field, and you shall throw it to the dogs. So you're going to be holy, and you're not going to eat these unclean things. Unclean things, what do you do with them? You throw them to the dogs. And at this time, uh, Jewish people call Gentiles dogs because they didn't know the difference between holy and unholy. And so he's saying that we need to look out for those who think they know what holiness is and what's not, and they don't really. They don't really know the difference between what's holy and what's not. Look out for the evildoers, um, those who do evil, and look out for those who think they're circumcised, but they're really not. What's the true thing? Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The reality is spiritual. It's not circumcision, you know, it allowed you to go into the temple, and if you were clean, you'd kept yourself clean, you could go in. That's not what really gets you in. It's the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit of God. That's what real worship is, is when we have worship in spirit and truth, as John 4 says. And so these three bewares are basically false gospels. People who think they know God and they don't. People who think they're clean and they aren't. People who think they're doing good, but they're actually doing evil. And they all seem kind of harsh. They're actually kind of sharp insults in one way to to a Jewish person because a Jewish person would use dog to refer to the Gentiles uh, in kind of a demeaning way, and yet Paul is turning that back on, on them. And one reason I think it's okay for him to do that is the example he uses here is himself. So really all these things Paul is saying about himself. Because as we go on here, Paul uses the next few verses to give examples, and his example is me. I was like this. This is the way I was. I had confidence in the flesh. I thought I knew what was holy and what wasn't, and I didn't. I thought I was really clean. I thought I was really part of the people of God, and I really wasn't. And so, though it's very sharp, it's not just a sharp insult as a jab. He's saying, and this is the way I was too. This is a, I'm the prime example of this. And so... Let's get into it. What is he saying here? So to understand those more fully, I think the best thing to do is look at Paul, his next section, which is he talks about himself. And so today there's a lot of things we could do in focusing on this passage, the different angles we could take. But today let's just take confidence. What does the gospel change about our confidence? We could talk about value. He talks about worth. But let's talk about confidence because he says the false their confidence is in the flesh. And the true, their confidence is not in the flesh. So where is confidence? Where is our confidence? And where does the gospel say our confidence should be? And Paul gives himself as an example here. And he's going to give us six things that he put his confidence in before knowing the Lord. And so let's look at those starting in verse 5. So he says, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, he has more. And here's his five ways that he was confident in in himself or in the flesh. First one, circumcised on the eighth day. So this first one would be confidence in a ritual. If I go through this ritual of circumcision, then I'm part of the people of God. If I do the ritual, 
then that's God's sign that I'm a part of his people. He's, he felt confident about it. Look, I've done this. This is important. This is what God commanded. God told Moses to, uh, that we need to do this, and here I did it. And look, I can go into the temple. I can go worship. I've got confidence that I'm a part of the people of God. Look at this outward ritual that I went through, and now I'm a part of the people of God. So he's very confident uh, in, his, in this ritual. What's the second source? Again in verse 5. Of the people of Israel... Ethnicity. His confidence was in his ethnicity. Look, God chose these people. I'm a part of God's people, Israel. He looked out across the whole world and he chose Israel. And now I'm a part of that. And he was confident. Uh, the people of God selected out of all the earth Israel. And he was, he was one, of the, one of the children of Abraham in terms of descent. His family. Third one. Also in verse 5, of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, why would he have pride in the tribe of Benjamin? Well, we could call this one confidence in rank. Because Benjamin was one of the tribes that when more than half, ten of the tribes fell away, Benjamin didn't. Benjamin was one of the was the tribe where Jerusalem was in their land. God selected my temple's going to be in in the land of the Benjamin. Benjamites or Benjamin and when the kingdom split Judah and Benjamin remained loyal to the real king to David God's king something to be proud of his rank in terms of being a part of the tribe of Benjamin or it could be we could say Hebrew of Hebrews you know that's kind of a different phrase that we don't use a lot but it's like the phrase king of kings so highest of the kings, or Hebrew of Hebrews, you could say, he was the most Jewish of all the Jews. If you were Jewish, he was more. And he, he had done it all. He was always there on the temple feast days. He did follow the law. So whatever um, whatever he means exactly there, Hebrew of Hebrews, he means that he was above some of the some of the Jewish other Jewish people. They were Jewish, but I was more Jewish. And we could call that rank. So the first three were confidence in ritual, confidence in ethnicity, and confidence in his rank. The second three somewhat overlap. The again in verse five. Next phrase, as to the law of Pharisee. That could also be rank. It's possible because the Pharisees were this group and they had kind of come up in power. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had the most power in terms of the Jewish temple and culture at that time. It was kind of like your pastor and the Supreme Court all combined into one because cases were tried by the religious leaders, and so a little bit different than our context. But a Pharisee would, could have been a high rank, but it could also have been confidence in knowledge. Why would it be confidence in knowledge? Well, the Pharisees, this word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word meaning separated ones. And so they kind of viewed themselves as morally superior group, as a morally superior group. They had all these Old Testament laws. What? How do we stay clean? How do we stay... Uh, pure for going into the temple and 
there's a lot of room for interpretation in the Old Testament. It says, don't break the Sabbath, but what does that mean? How many steps can you take on the Sabbath? It says, don't work, well, what kind of work? You know, how can we decide all these more difficult, nuanced decisions? And they had it all figured out. Well, this is like this, and this is how many steps you can take, and here's how you can do it, and this is what you can and you can't do on these days. And so they had it all figured out. They had their interpretation all down to the nth degree. They would strain out a gnat, uh, Jesus even said. And he also said they'd swallow a camel. But they were very particular. They would tithe mint and cumin. And so, knowledge, really. He's confident in his knowledge. Look, I, I know what the verses mean. People... He would be the guy if somebody said, well, what does this verse mean? What should I do here? They would go to them. I'm going to go ask a Pharisee, what should I do in this particular situation? How am I going to handle this? And they would tell you, this, this means this, this means that. And we've got it figured out down to the last nth degree, and we know what God really meant here. And so that's another confidence that comes from the flesh, which is just what you know, confident, very confident in what you know. I, I have it figured out. And the next one in verse 6 is passion or zeal. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was passionate. He had emotion, strong emotions about the things of God. And he was confident because of that. He would be the guy, if you were at church, who would be crying, right? Who, if you hear a, if he heard a false doctrine, not only would he not agree with it, he'd be passionate against it. That's wrong. That's not what God said. That's not what God means. That's not honoring to God. And he says in Galatians 1, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. He was extremely zealous. Maybe tears, anger, impassioned speeches. And we see in the New Testament, they would tear their clothes. Remember when Jesus uh, talked to the religious leaders when he was on trial and he talked about uh, being the son of God, and they tore their clothes, and they were passionate. They were so upset. It was boiling out. The emotions were boiling out. And he's saying that he was confident because of that. Look, I'm not just like all these other people that sit at church and just listen. At that time, it would be synagogue. I'm crying. I'm passionate. I'm angry. I'm ready. I'm, I'm willing to go out there. I'm fe- I feel these things deeply. And so he was, he was confident in his strong emotions. And then finally, again in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So one reason that I think when he says Pharisees, it's a different confidence than keeping the rules is because he specifically says it later. So we could call this rule keeping. His confidence was in rule keeping. He actually did those things. They had them all parsed out, do this, don't do this, don't go this far on the Sabbath, don't do this on the Sabbath, and he actually did it. He said he's blameless under the law. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. It could mean that when he, when he became unclean, he went and he offered the right sacrifices and he did it just in the right way. So he's not saying he's sinless, but he's saying even when he sinned, he followed, well, this is a sacrifice I need to give. Here's how I'm going to do it. And he followed all the rules. And there's even rules if you got unclean, then you don't do this and you don't uh, do that until you're clean. And so he, he followed those. He said he followed those. So he felt confident, confident in his rule keeping, in his passion, in his emotions, in his knowledge, in his rank, in his ethnicity, and in following through rituals. So these are his six 
areas where he felt confident in the flesh. And they all relate to him. You see that? Confidence in the flesh and what he did. Ritual, I can do it. I just get up and here's a ritual. And um, I'm going to make sure that I follow through with it. And rank. I'm going to I'm going to be the most Jewish of all the Jews. I'm going to make sure and go on all the feast days. I'm going to follow all the rules. Knowledge, I'm going to study and I'm going to know and I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to be a part of the right group. This group, the Pharisees, you know, we're they thought they were the group that had it all figured out. And rule keeping, I'm going to follow all the rules, do as best as I can. And you can see how they're all about him. I'm like this. I'm part of this. And even the ones about God, he was really focused in on himself. You can see that from Hebrew of Hebrews. I was he was confident in himself. His confidence was in himself. And I think you can see how that w- these things would lead to confidence, self-confidence. If people were coming to you asking you to help, how do I interpret these different verses and you were always one giving the answer, you'd feel confident in yourself. Hebrew of Hebrews, maybe he heard a mother saying to their other, other boys, look at Paul, why can't you be more like Paul? He's always going to the temple. He's always wearing his prayer shawl. Look, his tassels never get dirty in the dirt. That very well may be. He was always passionate coming to church. Why can't you be more like Paul, um, Benjamin? Look at Paul. He's crying at church. He really means it. He reads his Bible and he pray and he prays and he's and look at the tears and look he's out and he's telling other people. Remember, Jesus even talked about the Pharisees would go over land and sea to make a disciple. And that may very well be Paul. At that time, Paul was doing that, really, when Jesus said that. And so, here's this confidence. What does the gospel say? It moves us from self-confidence, confidence in any one or all of these areas, to confidence in something totally different. Look, let's read starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He said, I count it all loss. My confidence, all this confidence have, I'm, I count all that as dung, as worthless. Because I'm finding my confidence outside of me. Outside of me being Jewish. Outside of me having a high rank. Outside of a ritual that I did. Outside of that happened to me. Outside of knowledge that I have. Outside of my own emotions and how passionate I am. Outside of my own rule keeping. In Jesus, that's my confidence. It's my new confidence. My righteousness is in Him, not me. Not what I did. And that's totally different. Not an ethnicity. He's saying he didn't really have it. He thought he had it and he didn't. I mean, think about what what it really means. He had the ritual, but he didn't have reality. He had ethnicity and rank, but when he met the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and he really appeared to him, remember in the vision on the Damascus Road, he had no idea who he was. Think about that. Here's God. He's saying, he's the guy who people think, he really knows God, he's got it all figured out. And then God appears to him and he says, who are you? He doesn't really know God. 
right? He's, well, I'm a people of Israel. I'm one of the real people of God. Well, there's God. Who, who are you again? And he didn't know, right? And God specifically told him, Jesus told him, you're persecuting the real Christian, the real people that really know me. You kept all the rules, but he, he kept all the rules, but he realizes, I was really like a dog. I, I was keeping all these little rules, but I didn't know what was really holy and what was not. That's why I strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel. That's why I tied mint and cumin, but I didn't actually love God. That's what Jesus says about the Pharisees. And so the reality is, is he's saying, all those things I said, I, I was circumcised, but I was uncircumcised. I thought I knew what was clean, but I didn't. I was really a dog. I thought I was doing good, but I was actually doing evil. I was persecuting the people of God. And so that is what Paul is saying here. He's, he's lost confidence in all that. And one thing to think about is, he had the confidence, right? Like, he really thought he knew God. He wasn't just a little bit like, I think I know God, but I'm not 100% sure. He really thought he knew. He was out there killing. People were dying. He was pursuing people city to city and then putting them to death. He had orders, he had orders that he was allowed to, allowed to arrest them and bring them back. He was there, right? Likely he was, he was, he was there maybe with Stephen, you know, Stephen dying and Paul is there giving his blessing to it he was confident when you're ready to put somebody to death you're confident that's scary so we don't want confident we can add a seventh thing we don't want confidence in our confidence right well I've got all these things and I'm really confident about it well you could be wrong that's confidence in the flesh when it's about us when it's about our emotions and what we can do and the gospel is confidence in Jesus and what he did who he is and trusting him to wash us him to make us clean now let's talk about this briefly confidence in the flesh leads to two different directions so if we've got confidence in the flesh in what we do who we are what we know our emotions our ethnicity, any ritual we've done, where does it lead? It leads two directions. It either leads us to be conceited or crushed, despairing. We're either going to be conceited or crushed. We're going to be conceited and think we've got it figured out. Hey, I've got confidence in this and this and this. I don't need help. I've got it. I'm, I'm circumcised. I've been baptized. I go to church. I said a prayer. I'm, I'm good. I've got all the answers. I've I got no need to worry. Or it leads us to be crushed and despairing. There's no hope. I can't do it. I have, there's no hope for me to wash my own sins away. There's nothing I can do. And you're crushed. Why would it lead these two totally opposite directions? Well, if you can convince yourself you're good enough, you'll be conceited. You'll think, wow, if it's, some, if it's about me, what I've done, that's called self-righteousness, right? It's righteousness in myself. And where does that lead? If you've done it, and you're right, and you followed the rules, where's your confidence? In me. Where's your pride? It's in me. I did it. I, did it. I, I knew this answer. I prayed this prayer. I went and got baptized here. And I'm following these rules every day. And so you feel confident in yourself, conceited in yourself. I'm a pretty good person. When I look around at others, it might be by comparing ourselves to others. Look, Look at this person. Well, I, they're, they're not reading their Bible like I am. That's self-confidence, self-righteousness. You look at yourself and think, 
God is really glad to have me on his team. I've really got, I've really got this figured out. My good deeds, maybe some people think they're good deeds that way they're bad deeds. There's a lot of people that really believe that. Many, many of the world's religions, Buddhism, Islam, teach that specific thing. Good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You do more good, outweighs the bad. I'm going to heaven. Where's your confidence there? Me, I did it. My good deeds are outweighing my bad deeds. I've done it. And then your confidence is in yourself. It leads to conceit. If you've done it, you can boast. On the other hand, if you see reality, if you see the reality that you can't wash away your sins, that your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds, I, I'll tell you an illustration here. Kind of a little bit scary because I don't have my watch or my phone, so I have no idea how long I've been going. So we're, we're just um, do our best here. If I get going too long, you can cough. Everybody start coughing. Um, okay, I lost my train of thought there. Okay. If we see reality, we know that our good deeds can't outweigh our bad deeds. And I like to add, this is what I actually like to ask to Muslims, because Muslims will just tell you, you know, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. When I get to, when I die and go to judgment, my Allah is going to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds in a scale, and if they're good enough, then I'm going to go to heaven. So I ask, I like to ask Muslims this question. If your dad was the best dad in the world, best dad in the world, to all your brothers and sisters, and a lot of times I ask them, how many do you have? How many brothers and sisters? And I usually up it, whatever they say. So imagine they said, you got six. I said, imagine you had 20, 20 brothers and sisters, and your dad was literally the best dad in the world to 19 of those, of those kids. And he deserved an award every year for just being the best dad. But he was terrible to you, and he abused you. He deserves a reward, right? 19 to 1? He was the best dad in the world to 19, and he only abused one, and he was a bad dad only to one? He deserves a big reward, doesn't he? And they would say, no, he doesn't. Well, why not? His good deeds outweigh his bad 19 to 1. And his good deeds were really good, and, and he, he was only you know, bad to you. They say, no, he, he deserves punishment. Well, why is that? Because your good deeds can't outweigh your bad deeds, right? And if that's true, what if it was 100 to 1, 200 to 1? Does he deserve a reward? And they know. The answer is no. And you could say the same thing with a fire. You know, I, sometimes I'll say, if your parents died in a fire and they caught the arsonist and he was a firefighter and he said, look, I saved 10,000 lives. I did kill you know, these two people, but um, I saved 10,000. So I deserve actually a reward, not punishment. Is that, is that true? And they'll, even Muslims will tell you, no, that's not true. They deserve punishment. And so I'll say, why? Well, you know your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds. And I'll, then I'll tell them, what about you? Everyone around you is made in the image of God. Do you treat you know, 999 out of, 100, out of 1,000 amazing like they deserve? And you're only bad to one? You're only hateful and hurtful to one? That's just the same as the dad treating 20 kids good and one bad. Do you deserve a reward or punishment, according to what you said? And the reality is, is even Muslims and Buddhists who, who will say, this is, this is the way I'm getting to heaven, they know it's not true, right? That it's, 
even a thousand to one, it still deserves punishment. And if you see that, if you really see that, what happens is you're hopeless. You're not conceited, you're hopeless because you realize, wow, I've done all these good things and, and I could live the rest of my life doing good things, but it's not going to outweigh all these bad things I did, ever. It's never going to wash it away. There's nothing I can do to wash it away. Just like when you drive down the street, you can't go you know, past the cop going 100 and pull out the list of all the times you didn't speed and get off because your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds. If you break the law, you're guilty, and that's the way it is with God. That's what God said in James. If you break the law, you break one law, you're guilty. You're guilty. And so if we see that, we'll be despairing. There's nothing we can do to wash it away. There's nothing I can do to clean myself up. I've got these bad deeds on my record, and no, I could live the, like Mother Teresa the rest of my life and give my life to the poor, and it's not going to wash away those sins. It's never going to outweigh them. And you despair. You despair. Try and try and try and clean yourself up, and it never works, and you despair. Maybe for you or us, it might be more like you come into church every week. I used to do this, and every week I would tell God, I'm going to try harder this week, God. I'm so sorry about this sin. I'm going to try and clean myself. I'm going to try better this week. I'm going to try harder. And I would come in every week and feel terrible because I didn't. I wasn't better. I couldn't clean myself up. And then what? You get despairing. What's the gospel? The gospel is that our confidence is not in the flesh. It's not in what we can do. It doesn't lead to conceit because it's not something I can do. It's what Jesus did. It leads to boasting in Jesus, not self-confidence. It doesn't lead to despair because there is someone. There is someone that can wash away my sin. There is someone that can pull me out. There is someone that can save me. But it's not me. It's Jesus. It's not my emotions, it's not learning more facts, it's not a ritual, it's Jesus, a person. Not my rule keeping, Jesus. Not my passion, Jesus. Not my knowledge, Jesus. Not my rank, Jesus. Not my ethnicity or my parents' religion, it's Jesus. He's the clean priest, he's the one who followed the rules, he's the one who emotions always were right before God. He did, he did everything, and our confidence is all in him. And I'll tell you a story. This is a true story. I actually, I've shared this before, and I got some of the details wrong. So I looked this up in the Kansas City Star. My, actually, my dad helped me and sent me the article. Uh, it's actually about my grandfather, and it's really sad. I was just crying this week thinking about it. And, um, my grandfather was a welder. My dad was about three years old at the time, and he went to work in Merriam, Kansas. And he, he, it wasn't a vault that he was working on, which I think is what I said last time. It was an industrial oven. So it had a big metal door, huge iron door, and it was an industrial oven at a chemical plant. And they wanted him to put in some pipes and insulate it. And he was put welding pins to the door, welding pins to the metal door. And it had been declared gas-free, but it wasn't. And so once he cut through that metal door, uh, it exploded. And the, the, um, the door blew off the hinges and crushed him, and he died. And I wouldn't tell that story if my dad was here, because you can imagine losing your dad when you're three. 
hardly remember your dad, how sad that is and how hard that is. And that's a good picture of sin. That's a really good picture of what sin is. Because you're under a door. You're under a metal door. And if you have confidence in the flesh, there's only two options. If you're under that door and you're being crushed, and somebody comes by and says, you want me to help? And you say, I've got it. I can lift it. I can do it. That's conceit, right? You can't lift the door. You're totally unable to lift the door. And if you think you can, you're foolish. Sin is the door, right? If you're sitting here and you're lost and you think, I've got this sin, but I'm going to clean my life up. I'm hearing about Jesus, but I don't need his help. I'll get it. I'll lift it. You're conceited. You're foolish. You're not going to be able to lift it. Try. Try this next week. Try and clean yourself up. You're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to wash away old sins, and you're not going to be able to defeat the new temptations. Not for long. It's foolish to think you can lift it off yourself. On the other hand, you could lead to despair. If your confidence is in your flesh and you try, I'm going to try and lift it and you can't, you might be despairing. I, what am I going to do? I'm never going to be able to get out. Well, neither of those is true because there is someone that can lift the door. Jesus. Jesus can wash away your sin. Jesus can, Jesus can pull you out. Not you. It's not you plus Jesus. It's just Jesus. Jesus can lift the door. Jesus can save you. And it's much more impressive than just lifting a door. Jesus, God, became a man to die on a cross for you. He spilled his own blood for you. He got under the door for you. That's how Jesus lifted the door off you. And it's all just him, trusting him. Not in trying real hard yourself, not in working up your emotions, not in thinking your rank or your knowledge or your ethnicity or some ritual you had, none of it is going to lift the door, but Jesus can lift it. Jesus can wash away your sins that you could have never done for yourself, and he's willing. But you have to realize you need help. You have to stop placing confidence in yourself and say, Jesus, I'm never going to get out from under this sin. I'm never going to wash it away. I'm never going to try harder and come back next week and feel good. I need you to change me and save me. And the reality is the gospel depends on a real and living God actually coming into your life and actually doing something. Right? There's a real God who comes in and he really does wash away your sin and he really does give you a new heart and you really can be different because there's a real God who comes down and changes things. And we can say that, can't we? We're, who, who are Christians? That old person is gone. There's a new person now. Something really happened. It wasn't a ritual. It wasn't a fact in my mind. A real person I trusted, and they really came, and the door really is gone. It's different than it ever was. I'm really different. I'm really new. I've really been washed. That's the gospel. The gospel is stop putting confidence in yourself and put all your confidence in Jesus. How do we apply it to our lives? We talked about Paul and his context, what he's putting confidence in, but we're not Jewish. I, I doubt there's anyone here who's real confident because of some of the things Paul was confident in, but maybe there's other things. Maybe your confidence is in a ritual. What about baptism? There's many, many people who have been baptized who really believe, I'm going to heaven because I got baptized. That's a false confidence. 
I'm going to heaven because I confessed my sins and I took the Lord's Supper. I took communion. That's false confidence. What about a prayer? There's, I was one of these people who really believed I was going to heaven because I repeated a prayer. It was a ritual. It wasn't something real that Jesus did in my life. It was something I did that I could do, that I could clean myself up. If I just repeat this prayer, then I can go to heaven. And it didn't work. It was empty confidence. Ethnicity, I don't know if there's anyone here confident, maybe that their parents are Christians. I'm a Christian. I've always grown up a Christian. My parents are Christians. I'm a Christian. You can't become a Christian like that. Jesus specifically says, God says in John chapter 1, who were born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. A person is not, just because you're born to Christian parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. What about knowledge? Do you know the five points of Calvinism? Can you repeat John 3.16? Can you tell me that you're justified by faith alone? We're not trusting our knowledge. We're trusting Jesus. You can know the facts and not trust Jesus. And that's, that's also where I was at. I could tell you all those things, but I, I wasn't actually trusting Jesus with my sins. I was trusting me. I'm going to clean. That's why I came to church every week and said, I'm going to try harder next week, God. It's because I wasn't trusting Jesus. I was trusting me to know the facts, to do it right, to follow the rules. We can't trust our knowledge. We're trusting Jesus. Our passion, our emotions. You could come to church and weep every week. Weep over souls. Jump for joy at the music. Feel really, really good. Even last week we talked about rejoicing always. We could rejoice always and be lost if that's where our confidence is. Because our confidence is not in our emotions. How much we feel it this week. Aren't you glad that your confidence is not how real you felt uh, towards God this week? That it's in actually just Jesus? The real and living Jesus who really is there regardless of how we feel this week. That's good news. It's not our rule keeping. We don't want to slip into knowing the gospel, knowing that Jesus washed away our sin, but then slip into believing week to week that it's my rule keeping that actually is what makes the difference. That's where my confidence is. If I read my Bible and pray today, then here's my confidence towards God. I can go to bed, put my head down on my pillow and sleep softly because I followed the rules today. No, it's in Jesus, right? It's not in our rule keeping. Do we want to do those things? Absolutely. Is that where our ultimate confidence is? Absolutely not. It's in Jesus. Not our rule keeping. Not our church attendance. Not tithing. A lot of times for me it was the negatives. It was my real confidence was in my negative rule keeping. Like not watching too much TV. Not cursing. Not drinking. All those uh, big outward things I would feel kind of confident. Well, I'm not doing all these other things so I can feel confident. Our confidence is in Jesus. How do we apply this? If you're lost, the application is clear. You need to trust Jesus. You need to put your confidence in Jesus. Your confidence is not in Jesus if you're lost. It's somewhere else. We don't know. I don't know where it is. It might be in one of those other categories. It might be in something else that we didn't mention. But you've got your confidence in the wrong place. And when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, you're not trusting Jesus. You're trusting something else. Something you can do. Something that's happened. You've got to trust Jesus. That's if you're lost. The thing is, if you're lost, it's so much more sad than the real door crushing somebody. Because that's over like this. You know? It's over. And it's done. It was very sad. Exceedingly sad. But if you're lost, your sin's going to crush you forever. 
It's not going to end like that. It's going to, in a moment, be over your life, but it's going to go on forever and ever. And you know what? There's somebody right here saying, like, I'll, I'll lift the door. Just trust me. Stop trying. Stop trying to do it yourself. I'll pull you out. I'll, I'll die for you. And so many people just say, no, I don't care. I want to go on in my sin. If you're a kid, your parents don't want that for you. Your parents are praying for you. God, don't let them die in their sin. It's one thing to die. It's another thing to die when there's the cure is right there. You don't want it. What about for Christians? How do we apply this? For me, how I want to apply it for myself is, is a quote from David, David Dixon. I think he's a Puritan. And he said this when he was on his deathbed. Somebody asked him, what are you thinking about? This is what he said. I'm gathering up all my good deeds and all my bad deeds. And I'm tying them up into one big bundle and I'm throwing them all down at the foot of the cross. And I'm resting in Jesus alone. I misquoted that. And I'm resting alone upon the finished work of Jesus. I'm resting alone on the finished work of Jesus. And for me, that was a really helpful quote to me. And I used to do do this, and I want to kind of do this again, is when I go to bed, just when I go to bed, do that at night. Time all up my good deeds, anything I felt like I did well, and anything I felt like I did poorly. And put them all at the foot of the cross. Because I don't want to rest on those good deeds and become conceited. And I don't want to dwell on those bad deeds and become despairing. I want my confidence to be in Jesus. And it's really, it's really encouraging. Because for me, I, I feel like for me as in the Christian life, I know the gospel, but I can swing back and forth and not be living the gospel day to day. If I do well today, feel good. If I do bad, feel poorly. And I don't want that to be my life. I want my life to be resting every day. Whether I do well, I think I do well. I might not even be doing well, but I might think I'm doing well. Or whether I mess up. And every day, rest in Jesus. Confidence in Him. On the days where I get up late and I read my Bible for five minutes, not be despairing all day. Put that at the foot of the cross. On the days where you get up early and you read a ton, not be conceited, not feel great about it. You put all of it at the foot of the cross. And you trust Jesus alone. Every day. And for me, I want to do that. I want to preach the gospel to myself more and more every day. And for me, me, I'm going to try to do it at bed, when I'm going to bed. Put all the, the things behind me in the day and say, Jesus, anything good is from you. Anything bad, I'm trusting you to wash it away. And I'm resting. I've got peace today as I put my head on the pillow because of what you did for me. And so that's the gospel. That's where our confidence is. It's in Jesus. It's in knowing him. It's gaining him through faith, just trusting him. We don't have to earn it. We bring all our good deeds, all our bad deeds, and we give them all to him, and he'll rescue us, save us. And we can know him. We can be like him. And then... We can have peace. We can have confidence with God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today. I do pray that this would be helpful, real. 
Thank you so much, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for pulling us out when we were just totally trapped under sin, the way to sin, and we didn't even want to be saved. And you came and said, talk to us, showed us our need of you and your willingness to help. We're thankful. I do pray for my dad this morning and um, my uncle and just think about how hard it is to lose a parent. And um, I just pray that you'd be near to him. Pray for other people like who've lost parents and still struggling with that, I think, lifelong. And just pray that you'd be near to him and helping him. Pray for the Corks who lost their kids. I just uh, pray for them. Lord, would you help them in this real hard situation, tragedy? We lift today up to you. We love you, God. We know you're near and you're with us even when we don't feel it. We're thankful our confidence is in you, not our feelings or anything like that. I do pray for kids here. I pray that we would have some kids saved and baptized and walking with you day to day. We lift it all to you, Lord. We love you. We're thankful for you. Amen. We're dismissed, and if you could fellowship outside, that would be great.